I don't know about y'all, but who else is excited for the best part of the year, the most absolute favorite time of the year, Thanksgiving dinner, when your entire extended family asks you, so do you have a boyfriend yet? <laughs> um, absolutely not me. Not me. Um, yeah. I feel like there are a handful of questions that at a certain point people are no longer allowed to ask you those unless you bring up the topic. Are you dating anyone? Definitely one yep. of those. Agreed. When are you going to have a baby? Major Agreed. one. Um, what are some Are you ones? having a baby? That one. <laughs> also. <laughs> They'll tell you ever, if they are. <laughs> ever, ever ask someone that. That is not fair. But also, the point I'm trying to make is you, even the people you are closest to, there may be some parts of their life that you are not privy to. And if they don't bring it up, when it's when it's a topic like this, that's, you know, if someone's dating someone exciting, you're probably going to know about it. See, that's, that's my thing, is I feel like with these kind of questions, I want to pull the other person in close and be like, you and I both know, if I had news I wanted to talk about, I would have already told you. All I do is run my damn mouth. So if I haven't <laughs> talked about this, the answer is probably, nope. Sometimes I want to answer things like, no, how's your third divorce going, Aunt Shelley? I saw Uncle Rick has a new girlfriend. She looks a lot younger than you. Because, you know, Thanksgiving's about <laughs> destroying the people you love most, right? It's absolutely not. Don't don't treat your family. I'm going to be with you this Thanksgiving. <laughs> I hope it's not your goal. <laughs> yes, if everyone doesn't leave the table with just that really uncomfortable family silence because, like, you can hear someone crying in a room, like, one thin wall away. <laughs> then was it really Thanksgiving? Okay, um, you know... But don't actually do that, y'all. Do that in your head to, like, relieve the stress, and then say, <laughs> No, I am still single, but looking! <laughs> and then get more pie and wine. Have you been on the dating apps today? <laughs> when your older Which relatives one? Uh, start suggesting dating apps for you that's when you know you're just truly fucked i know oh i heard this bumble i know i've been on it for a year no <laughs> luck the beehive's dead just like the real bees oh that was oh. dark yeah, well and, and true <laughs> and with that darkness hello everyone this is blood and wine i'm Brittany, and i'm tyler and and i'm still single for the holidays i mean same Yay. it's just it is what it is it's, you know, I... Ain't nothing wrong with being a single... I, uh, just true. in general. Single in general. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, why yeah. Why do people have to make it an issue? You know who's single? Lizzo. I don't know. Lizzo. <laughs> I, th I don't know. I think so. <laughs> I was gonna say Beyonce, but she's, like, famously not. She's famously married, so... Not. I don't know. Single. Demi Lovato. And she's cool for the summer. She's amazing. Love her. But so, you yes. know what else is amazing, Tyler? What, Brittany? Our Patreon and our Patreon supporters. <gasps> you don't say. <laughs> hey, isn't Patreon that one cool community website where you can go to support your favorite podcasts? It definitely is, Tyler. And let me tell you a little bit about it. I'm not doing that voice anymore, oh, by the okay. way. Um, yeah, no, that's fair. No, so Patreon is where you guys can support us. Again, thank you so much to those of y'all who have 
gone out over to the Patreon and are contributing. You're getting those murder minis, the bottle talk episodes, and um, you guys are directing some of our episodes on here, which is super appreciated. And we have one new Chardonnay Syndicate member that I want to welcome to the Blood and Wine family. So Andrea Embarato, I apologize if I said your last name incorrectly but andrea welcome thank you so much for everything you do and we hope that you're enjoying all your extra stuff yes thank you so so much also while y'all are checking out patreon make sure to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already not that you can do that through patreon but that was me trying to make a (laughs) easy transition uh but yeah subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice That way you'll get alerts and you'll get episodes like immediately when we post them every Tuesday. Yes. Um, Okay. Well, this is going to be a really interesting episode and I'm looking forward to it. So Tyler, since you were the big loser last week, (laughs) do you want to tell, let's talk about our topic. Yeah. So for this topic, I think, you know, we've talked about it multiple times before how Serial killers, it feels like a 70s and 80s thing. Totes. Like, when you think serial killers, you think the Ted Bundys, the Dahmers, the Gary Ridgeways, old people. You think old people. You think things that are happening, like, way in the past, 50 years ago. Side note, the 70s was like 50 years ago. Just remember that. Or I guess the 1970 is almost 50 years ago. Whatever. How awful is that? That's crazy. That's really weird. But just, yeah, so little side note there. But um, what's actually crazy is that serial killers, it's not like they stopped. It's not like in 1989 turned into 90 and they were like, pack it up, boys. We're heading on out of town. You know, how serial killers sound. <laughs> um, but serial killers happen all the time, including right now. I know. and In I... your room. <laughs> under your bed they're hiding there's a serial killer they're gonna get you while you sleep it's tonight it's 3 a.m do you know where your children are no but serial killers today modern serial killers that is the topic and just in case y'all are wondering technically i think 2000s was the band of what we put modern at and i we have mentioned this before and again failed to look it up so sorry you guys email us if you actually have this answer because clearly i'm never gonna find it but there are active serial killers right now and there's some number that um investigators have estimated like there's x number of active serial killers at this moment in time and maybe we don't want to know that number maybe it's good i didn't look it up maybe subconsciously i really just would rather not know 151 billion. No, but I think it's in the hundreds. I mean, I think so, yeah. It's something like that. We mentioned it in an episode, some episodes ago. I don't know. If y'all can find it, let us know. But, yeah, so that's creepy and scary. So we need wine. We, yeah. Let's get our wine. Let's talk about our wine. (laughs) Yes, I... Yeah, I agree. Hundred plus one. <laughs> all of the all of the sounds of agreeance that I can make. Uh, agreeance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Golly gee whiz! That sounds like a dandy idea. Oh my god. Um. So you're you're so pumped. So I'm gonna you know tell you 
just let's we can't even talk right now that's how much we need this that's how much we need wine (laughs) we're getting the shakes all right well uh what wine did you pick so you know how sometimes when you're buying wine you like have a varietal in mind you're like "Ooh, this sounds good this is really what i'm looking for yeah and you like you know you choose your wine with purpose and then other times you see a label and you're like oh that looks fun i'm drinking that my choice was the latter today hey you know what When you see a pretty bottle, you just gotta buy it. It's not necessarily pretty as just interesting and kind of looks like a, um, like a sixth grader learning Photoshop made it in class. Okay, well you're gonna have to show me the bottle now. (laughs) I know. So it's just this white label with like color splotches <laughs> and then like poorly photoshopped faces into them. And then one of the faces is a dog. Which I don't is know. why you bought it. That's why. Um, no, I I mean, the label was why I bought it. I was like, that looks so interesting. I wonder what the hell it is. People. And then also, when I was looking at it, I was like, I don't actually know what the name is. Because like the label is all the things. And then it has like... At the very bottom, in very small font, it says Tenedo. And then on the right, like sideways, but almost looking like a, um, like an identifier label for shipping, it says Calia number one. Okay. No, Cala number one. So I looked it up. Apparently it is the 2015 Tenedo Cala number one. It is a Spanish wine that is a blend of 80% Tempranillo and 20% Syrah. Which is a blend I don't think I've ever heard of before. I am very intrigued by that blend. Right? Um, I honestly could not find out a ton about this wine and its history, the vineyard, all that fun stuff. I did find three, like, comments that people had written about, like, what it tastes like and stuff. And then on the back of the bottle, it does say... The Tempranillo variety enhance the volume in the mouth. I think it's very much a um, translation because it's just the conjugation's a bit off. But honestly, it's better than my English to Spanish, so. But the Tempranillo variety enhance the volume in the mouth and contributes with its characteristic mineral spice. And there's a comma between minerals, but oh, between its char- characteristic mineral, spice, and ripe fruit, aromatic, powerful notes. The Syrah variety supplies floral and licorice essences. The Cabernet Sauvignon espresses kind, fruity aromas and fresh tannins. There's not any cab in this, by the way. I don't know why that's on the label. I don't know what I'm about to get myself into. I think I'm drinking bathtub wine. <laughs> but you know what? Those, the cab that's not there, they're real friendly, though. I mean... Dude, it's yeah. it's prison wine. They made that in prison Photoshop. Okay? That's, that's why the label is what it is. That's what I'm guessing. Uh, But the three people who have apparently tried this prison wine said, one person said, ruby red, aroma of wild dark berries and minerals, full-bodied, lots of minerals, velvety, vanilla and chocolate, spicy finish. So again, minerals a lot. Um, The next person said, very intense Spanish wine, in nose blackberry, in taste plum, 
pepper, a lot of oak, subtle and long aftertaste, not acidic. And then um, the last person, which I saved this one for last because it's so interesting sounding. They're... It might be from Spain, but taste will lead you straight to Finland because it's a lot of licorice here mixed with some spices, light citrus and blackberry. I don't know where the fuck citrus is coming in. I literally have no idea what I'm about to drink, but it was like $13 at um, a little downtown grocery store, so maybe you'd be able to find it for like 11 yeah. Oh my god. The kind of grocery store where you can buy like a breakfast taco for three dollars, and you're like, "That's that's a lot," but I'm gonna <laughs> do it because you're convenient. And you know that's why they do call them convenience stores. Well, it was the if y'all live in Austin, it's Blue Grocery. I love them, um, and it's like the only grocery store grocery stores downtown. They pricey though. It, yeah, it's true. You don't mean Royal Blue, do you? That's the one I meant. Oh my god. What did god. I say? Blue Grocery. And I okay, thought, I mean, I mean, yeah, but for a second I was like, well, wait, there could be another, but there's not. So. It's just Royal Blue. And this one is a corked wine. But while I get into this, tell me about your wine that you chose. I'm really excited about this one. It's another one that I got at trusty old Trader Joe's. You know, our favorite spot. TJ's. This is called the 2018 St. Somewhere Chardonnay from Alexander Valley in Sonoma County, California. St. Somewhere? St. Somewhere. I love that. And the... Let me just pop it. <laughs> the cork is stuck. <laughs> No, but it's stuck. <laughs> and I, I'm weak from lack of wine. <laughs> that was such a pathetic pop for how much it was supposedly stuck. Listen, okay, first off, that cork is like twice the size at the bottom <laughs> as it is at the top. It is. <laughs> okay, I'm glad, I'm glad you got into your wine finally. You were, Me too. You were struggling and I wanted to show you my bottle. It's cute. But it's like stained glass with a wine bottle instead of a saint. Oh. I thought from a distance it just was some saint doing its thing. You know how the, um, I mean, you were an art history major, so you actually do know how, but the, like, medieval paintings of people in churches, how they, like, look real flat and real shit and don't look <laughs> like people. <laughs> Okay, but Listen. if you realized that those were painted so, so long ago, you wouldn't be calling them shit. I mean, listen, I'm just saying, <laughs> like, people are better painters today. But regardless, <laughs> it it it's done in that style. It's that very flat. And so I thought it was just like a cloaked saint woman. It's a wine <laughs> bottle. Yes, it is done in the Byzantine style. But, yeah, that so... One. <laughs> okay. <laughs> This wine is definitely one of the examples that shows how Trader Joe's gets all of these amazing wines at, um, you know, and they sell them at really approachable prices. This was $8 for a bottle. Wow. And it's at, from Alexander Valley. Like, that is a place where you will easily find wine that's worth a ton of money and bottles are very expensive. So $8 for an Alexander Valley 
um, almost called it a cab, uh, Chardonnay is really good. So how, how does Trader Joe's do this? Like literally we always get our wine there. What's their secret? And honestly, part of this is the agreement that they make with a specific winemaker that they're not going to reveal that winemaker's identity. So St. Somewhere, St. Somewhere is, that's what Trader Joe's calls this wine. What's actually in this bottle is from a winery we don't know about because Trader Joe's made that deal with them. And they also agreed to buy a whole bunch of the wine and pay up front. Oh my God. The wine is from St. Quentin. We're both drinking prison wine today. <laughs> I think I, I think not. Um, so when those terms are enabled, that is how Trader Joe's was able to procure this Sonoma Valley Chardonnay and offer it at this extremely low price of $8. Um, mm-hmm. This Chardonnay specifically is a golden yellow that has aromas of ripe apple, citrus, and brulee. So like, think of how creamy and sweet the caramelized custard is on a creme brulee. Oh my god, that mm. t- sounds so good right now. <laughs> <laughs> my mouth started watering. Mine did too. I'm just thinking of some creme brulee. I know. God, it's just it's just good adult pudding. Oh my god, that you put like fire on it. So it's like dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous, really good pudding. That's hard to make, I hear. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine making it, <laughs> making a creme brulee with like a snack pack pudding. <laughs> <laughs> just throwing matches on top of it. It's the poor man's creme brulee. <laughs> College creme brulee. Um, <laughs> oh, that's sad. It is. Um, okay, so this does have oaky notes, so I'm going to like it. You wouldn't. Um, but it, there's not a ton. There's just enough in there to balance out the minerality. Um, like I said, you would normally pay a whole hell of a lot more than $8 for a wine of this caliber. So yeah, I've got to get into it. Yes. I, I can tell looking at it that it would be like a very oaky, buttery one. The bottle almost is the color of like an olive oil bottle. It is. You're right. Or I guess of olive oil. It's not like a dark green bottle of wine, but yeah. It's kind of a golden bottle. Um, so yeah. I have a, a new wine opener that I'm using. Is it's... that thing solid gold? Not like actual like gold gold, but the color... This is the one our listener sent to us. Oh. So thank you, listener, for the new wine cork opener. I've had it for a while. Um, But it's solid gold. Oh my god, it's gorgeous. I know. I'm I'm honestly obsessed with it. It's the one I keep in my purse. Got it. (laughs) Oh, that was a much better pop than mine. Yeah, it was. It was. Oh my gosh. I haven't had to Chardonnay in a while. I guess since whatever the last time I I did one on here was. Yeah. yeah. I haven't had a Chardonnay since the last time I had a Chardonnay. No, wow. but I did it for the podcast. <laughs> um, This You're is right. also at 14.7%, which is pretty Ooh. up there for a white. Mine's 14.5, so we're just getting a little sloshy slosh tonight. You know, we had some technical difficulties trying to get started today on the episode, so I'm thinking that we do need the stronger wine. You're damn right about that. (laughs) But, um, so I'm so interested in my wine, and 
there's a part of me that does not think that it's 80% Tempranillo, because Tempranillo, as a lot of y'all know, because I talk about it all the time, I never shut up, uh, <laughs> is one of my favorite grapes, and one of my favorite varietals, and Tempranillo's not known for being super tanniny, and this wine, granted I haven't tasted it yet, but when I smell it, it smells so strongly of, like, tannins and alcohol that it literally made my mouth start watering, like, as if I had drank a really tannic wine. So I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm about to put in my mouth, but it has alcohol in it and a piece of cork, so that's <laughs> <laughs> whatever. All right, well, let's uh, give ourselves this much-deserved bottle of wine, so cheers. Cheers. um (laughs) y'all your face made me think that that was real gross it's not it's not real gross oh that is the oakiest wine i have ever put into my body (laughs) to the point where you know um you know when you're having like a mixed drink like a cocktail and you can tell that there's a lot of alcohol in it because, like, even though it's iced, when it hits your tongue, it's, like, not cold kind of thing. hmm Well, that just happened. Uh, but with the oakiness, it almost felt like there was an underlying, like, oil slick. Did you accidentally buy olive oil instead of wine? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's almost like I just sucked off the barrel. Wait, excuse me, what? Like, I had the barrel with the wine in it and just like put my mouth on it and just hoovered up the wood oils and stuff oh i mean that's not what i thought you meant okay we're not Uh, what is your wine taste like well it does not taste like i'm sucking off a barrel (laughs) (laughs) actually though it kind of does because it's really oaky (laughs) i did not realize it would be this oaky um, especially because the description is like, oh, it has like light notes of oak, but literally it's one of the oakiest Chardonnays I've ever had. It's good, but it's, the oakiness makes it a little bit sweeter. It's just like Oak Fest 2019 over here between the two of us. This is the oak wine episode. Your favorite. Yeah. Yay. No, I like oaky reds. This one I just was not expecting. And two things I want to note. First, the review that said it's a very intense Spanish wine. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I can tell that, yes, tasting it, it is a Tempranillo. It is definitely more of a medium-bodied. They said full-bodied. It's not. It's not that, like, viscous. Yeah. Um, I guess I can see what they mean by, like, licorice. But it's more because it's, like, very minerally and that intense, intense oak. Rather than, because when I think licorice, I think, like, eating a nasty-ass black jelly bean or Twizzler or something. Or That's what I think of, like too. Or, like, that very herbal um, anise. Anise? Anise? I always forget it. How it's said. Uh, I don't know. It's that, I think anise. I'm gonna go with that anise. That herbal anise flavor. <laughs> <laughs> Star anise. I have a cat with one of those. Um, <laughs> 
wow, that 14.5% is hitting. No, but um, I would not call this licorice by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't think those people have eaten licorice. And furthermore, when you say licorice, you mean Norway. I'm sure Finland has licorice. I'm sure Sweden has their licorice. They do. Scandinavians love licorice. It's weird. Denmark has but their licorice, But let me tell too. you, in Norway, you, like, turn the corner and everything is salted licorice flavor. They put, like, big-ass chunks of sea salt on it. It's a lot. I fucking hate licorice, but also, like... The medicine, the cough syrup you get, it's like licorice flavor. And all the kids are like, oh, mother, daddy, I love this. And I'm like, I'm gonna go die. Okay, well, that's a little and dramatic. Then I get, <laughs> and then I get, like, one cough, and I'm like, give me all the NyQuil. <laughs> yeah, it's because you're a man and you're a wimp. It's true. Men are wimps when they're sick. But also, fun challenge, uh, reading medicine in another language. Reading medicine in English, like you're <laughs> just in whatever your native tongue is, is hard enough. Because you're like, ah, oh, paracetamol, sure. <laughs> Reading, like, medicine names in Norwegian, I'm like, oh, I'm calling my friend who's a pharmacy student and just having her send me pictures. Yeah, actually, you're really lucky that you had that. It, true. So, all right, well... We've got our Oki Wines. We've talked about our topic, modern day serial killers. Tyler, why don't you jump into your case? Who did you pick? Who's your modern day serial killer of choice? Was that too creepy? Of choice. I don't really know what was going on there. It was like a vocal (laughs) fry into a swamp, but okay. That's what I was going for. Yeah, no, I could tell. Um, So... The case that I chose, the modern-day serial killer, one I had never heard of before I started doing the research, feels like one I should have heard of, so true crime friends, no, true crime fans, Brittany included, let me know if I should have known about this a long-ass time ago. Obviously not that long ago, modern, but you'll see. This is serial killer Israel Keys. Oh my god. You picked a good one. Um, This is, so, yeah, you probably should know who this is, but it's okay if you don't, because I guarantee you, when you did this research, you were probably like, what the, what? So, um, yes. Oh, it was horrifying. I read, like, you know, I was going through people and reading, like, paragraph-long descriptions. I got, like, two sentences into this one. I was like, found it, done with, got it. Yeah, so listeners, if you haven't heard of Israel Keys, that's totally okay. Um, I heard about this case within the last year or so, so it's not like I've known about this for a long time either, but... um, Well, and if you haven't heard about it, you're about to. You're about to, and it is one hell of a case. It is a lot. So the sources I used are also a lot. I used an article from ThoughtCo... Profile of Serial Killer Israel Keys by Charles Montaldo. An article from Oxygen, Vermont Couple Was Asleep in Bed When a Serial Killer Shattered Their Quiet Life by Jill Selderstrom. So, I bet you can guess what that article could be about. It's very ambiguous. Um, An article from Inside Edition, 
how America's most meticulous serial killer studied other murderers to hone his craft by Caitlin Nolan. I'm just saying, to to people writing um, these articles on true crime, we love this. We could not do this without you. You can shorten those titles. <laughs> like, that's that's okay. I mean, no, maybe man. it has that's stuff to do with, Fun. like, when I think clickbait, I think, like, BuzzFeed. <laughs> So it's like these ten crazy facts about who, and, and you're like, you click what? on it, do you not? No, I. You're right. You're right. Okay. Um, another article I used from Alaska Public Media: Police release detailed account of Koenig murder by Josh Edge. An article from the New York Post: A chilling look inside one of America's most infamous serial killer cases by Maureen Callahan. And then an article from Rolling Stone, American Psychos, 10 Modern Serial Killers You've Never Heard Of by Melissa Locker. See, when I'm thinking clickbait, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, no. You'll never Um, guess who number four is. Speaking of American Psycho, listeners, I finally got Tyler to watch a movie with me and we watched American Psycho. We did. Um, I was so impressed with Christian Bale. Uh, literally, I love that movie. It's really, really messed up. Uh, but I feel like he just embodies that character so well. I really want to read the book. Because I, it's going to be so I thought so the good. movie was... Yeah, I thought the movie was fine. Um, I I don't like movies, but... Um, That's why you're was, not a movie it was critic. Fine. That would be my review for most. <laughs> I don't like movies, but this one was fine. And then it's like a movie with Anne Hathaway, and I'd be like movie of a generation honestly though for someone who is so obsessed with titanic and absolutely loved that movie which is three hours mind you surprising Mm -hmm. that you're not into movies listen that's because that's the perfect movie and the bar was just set that high when i was a child and it's impossible to reach it and i've stopped trying okay that sounded darker than i meant it but (laughs) (laughs) okay so yeah, we're just going to chug a lug, truck along into the darkness uh, with this case. So, on the morning of Thursday, February 2nd of 2012, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was reported missing from her workplace, which was this small roadside coffee kiosk that she'd worked at the night before alone in, um, in Anchorage, Alaska. And... Um, I didn't know coffee kiosks like this were a thing until I moved to Seattle, but it's literally like a tiny, maybe like 10 foot by 15 foot, almost trailer looking thing that's in like a parking lot. It has like a drive through window and that's it. You drive up, order your coffee and stuff. Best coffee you'll ever get. It's like a snow cone stand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're in the South, you've never seen that. It's just like a snow cone stand. I don't really know if they have snow stands in Alaska. They probably just go outside and eat the snow, but... But, um, yeah, so these coffee kiosks, it's not... I just want to say, it's not like she's working at a Starbucks or something, or like an actual store. It's a tiny, very, um, I don't know, small, in like a parking lot. Yeah. Her disappearance rocked the city. I mean, Anchorage is one of those cities that is both a big town... And a small town kind of thing where, yeah, it has like 275, 291,000, I think 291,000 people in it. But 
it's very much like it has a lot of that rural mindset, a lot of mm-hmm. that community atmosphere. So even though there's a lot of people living there, it's a lot of people living there together in a small town atmosphere. Kind of like how we described um, Amarillo, Texas, back in episode like 41 or whatever Homicide on the High Plains was. Yeah, that was that's a, a perfect episode. Definitely. That's a perfect way to describe it, though, like a big small town or a small big town. Yeah. So her disappearance, it, it put everyone on edge. And the FBI joined the local police in the search, but weeks went by with no leads. The night she had disappeared, she'd received calls from both her boss and her boyfriend. And initially these calls went unanswered, but soon, you know, her boss and her boyfriend received texts back that seemed like Samantha was having just a very bad day and she was be heading out of town for the weekend. Like, she was pissed. She was not happy. She was like, I need some Samantha time. And then a while later something really weird happened. Her ATM card, which had a tracker on it, because they were looking, you know, where could she be? Mm -hmm. It started pinging. Someone was using her card in the lower 48 states, not in Alaska. That's far away. Yeah. On February 17th, her boyfriend got a text from her. So it's like 15 days after she's disappeared. And it told of a ransom note and a photo that could be found in Connors Bog Park under Albert, quote-unquote. Something tells me this is not her texting. You could maybe say that. Um, The photo that was on this ransom note, like one side was the photo and on the back of it was the ransom note. So the photo showed a man's arm holding the Anchorage Daily News that was dated February 13th, 2012, And right next to this was Samantha, and she was tied up. On the back, the ransom letter demanded $30,000 wired to Samantha's, like, ATM card account. Anchorage police were immediately notified, and they went to the park and found it under a memorial flyer for a dog that was named Albert. So that's where it was, under Albert. Which is really vague instructions. Although, it's it's very vague instructions, but if you went and you looked at the bulletin board and you saw Albert, you would you would know immediately what it meant. But before, that, that is true. But before you got there, yeah, it's like, Albert, is that a statue? Like, who Cause the fuck is that? I was thinking it was it's... a statue or some type of memorial, and uh, no. See, I would imagine, my first thought, and I don't know why, but was just like, I don't know, some unaware dude named Albert sitting at the park, like, reading, and someone just, like, slid the photo under him, like, under his butt. (laughs) It's under Albert. Excuse me, sir. Um, Excuse me. I just need to... There's a paper under your... Move, Albert. Move. Take off your headphones. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, It was under a poster of a dog named Albert. And the photo, at first, I mean, it seemed pretty standard. It's a... It's, you know, just a ransom photo. But... It was anything but standard. While in the photo, Samantha appears tied up, you know, distressed, but very much alive. She'd been dead for more than two weeks, and her body had been posed for the photo. How did he take a photo of her dead for two weeks and she wasn't decomposing? Well, it's February in Alaska. Oh. Oh, shit, that's true. He could just leave her in a 
barn that's not air conditioned or they're probably not using the ac in february they're probably using the heater yeah but there's no but, um, no source of heat so it's like a freaking yeah. it's a giant ice box and it's it's also not a um super clear photo and the one i saw was in black and white i don't know if that's like the how it was or just how it was um I don't know, distributed or just on this website. But if it was in black and white, I mean, it's it's hard to make out a ton of detail. But Samantha would be the last murder victim of Israel Keys. I don't like the sound of that. I thought this was the beginning. It is not. We're going to work backwards from this. So a little bit of background on Keys. He was born January 7th of 1978 in Richmond, Utah, his parents were Mormon, and they were very Mormon, or I guess just very religious in general. They homeschooled their children, and then when he was a little older, the family moved to Stevens County, Washington, and they attended the Ark, which, to me, that's a very foreboding name. I mean, obviously, it's, it doesn't have to be, but just the Ark. I'm like, oof. Um, and this is a Christian identity church and is very known for being... Uh, racist and having very anti-Semitic views. Not a good place. During the time that the family was at the Ark, they were friends and neighbors with the Kehoe family, and Israel Keys was actually childhood friends with Chevy and Shayna, I think? So C-H-E-Y-N-E. So we've got Keys and Kehoe? I don't know, it could be Kehoe. Kehoe, it's K-E-H-O-E, but Chevy and, I'm going to call her Shayna, were known racists, and they would actually later in life be convicted of some really heinous murder. So that was his childhood friends. How, that is, okay, I'm so sorry. My head's going to the place of, like, this whole nature versus nurture thing, and they both went to this school. Like, this... To, to my, like, completely unscientific, haven't done any of the research head, I'm like, well, that leads credence to nurture. Oh, I mean, I think nature and nurture both breed a serial killer. I, I think th- you have to have both. Usually. I think you can definitely have cases where someone, like, does have a perfect home life or, you know, great, and then is a serial killer. Or you could have cases where someone is... You know, very just, I don't know, the worst home life, but, you know, has nothing, like, physically or mentally wrong with them, becomes a serial killer. Also, vice versa. You know, people with really fucked up childhoods and a lot of mental disorders who don't serial kill people. But I I think for the most part, it's aspects of both. See, to me, I think it's either or. Which, I guess, leans into it could be both as well, but... I don't think you can really... There's not a distinction. It's not made or born. It just is. Yeah. There you go. Okay. There's my scientific opinion. Thank you. Thank you. I'm done for today. Here is your Nobel Prize. It is actually just a Toblerone. I mean, I'm honestly super okay with that. Thank you. (laughs) Same. Please share. Uh, No. But, so, yeah. He was childhood friends with some real fucked up people. And at the age of 20, Keyes joined the U.S. Army, served at Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, and also in Egypt, until being honorably discharged in 2000. And his life of crime, though, 
it had begun way before he joined the military. He would later admit to raping a young girl in Oregon sometime between 96 and 98. Um, so when he would have been 18 to 20 years old. And he said he had separated a girl from her friends and he raped her, but he didn't kill her. Oh. He wanted to kill her. Oh. He planned on killing her, but he didn't. Okay, Israel, that, that makes it okay. Fuck you, dude. Exactly. By 2007, he had established the Keys Construction Company in Alaska, and he began working as a construction contractor. And it was from this base in Alaska that he would venture out into almost every region of the U.S., and he would plan and commit his murders. So, because, you know, it's his job to fly to New Jersey and do a construction thing, or fly to Minnesota, or New Mexico... I don't know, these are just places that are far from each other. But that was part of his job, so he was able to murder everywhere. So Key's usual routine of terror was to fly to some rando area of the country, rent a vehicle, and then he would drive sometimes hundreds of miles to find victims. He would set up and bury these murder kits that he had in his targeted areas, They would have items like shovels, plastic bags, money, weapons, ammunition, and bottles of Drano in them. And he would bury these murder kits all around the U.S. So he had some major planning involved. Oh, his planning is, I think, one of the most terrifying parts of this. His murder kits were found in Alaska and New York, but he admitted to having some in Washington, Wyoming, Texas, Arizona... I mean, that's fucking scary. Oh my god. Y'all can't see my face, but it just got like this like white sheet because that's horrifying. Because he's just like yeah. planning his everything he could possibly need. And these trips he's going on when he is going on murder sprees, he's financing them not through his company, but from bank robberies that he's doing so he's also committing like robberies and stuff while he goes around so he's using cash it's not things that are traceable there's not going to be a record of like oh he you know was here because again he's also flying into places and driving a while so he may fly into indianapolis and a murder happens in kansas he is definitely not a stupid killer And the fact that he, like, is thinking through this, he's stupid because of what he's doing, but he's smart, and it's, and that's so scary and creepy, and I can't even, there's not even words to describe the the emotion I'm feeling with how, like, disturbing that is, with how intelligent Mm -hmm. he was, and how planned out this was, and it it honestly just goes to show how seriously fucked up he was. Oh, 100%. He would look for victims in very remote areas like parks, campgrounds, trails, or like boating areas. And if he was targeting a home, he would look for a house that had like an attached garage, no car in the driveway, no children or dogs, basically ones that had as few variables as possible. And finally, after committing the murder, he would leave the area immediately, like the geographic area. So, 
there's not going to be evidence that he was there. You know, there's not going to be a hotel receipt from the Motel 6 in town. Totally. Or even a Motel 6 within 200 miles. And one such incident of this was the murders of Bill and Lorraine Courier. So in June of 2011, Israel Keys flew from Anchorage to Chicago, and he had plans to visit his brother in Maine. But after renting a car and driving east, he decided that he's going he's gonna to do some murder along the way. And again, this is kind of what I was saying about he would fly into areas and drive forever. Because obviously, if you're visiting someone in Maine, you're going to fly into, like, Boston Logan Airport. You're, or maybe if you want to take a scenic drive, you fly into JFK or LaGuardia. Right. But flying into Chicago and driving Chicago to Maine, first off... That's ew. a long drive. And it's a long drive through, like, I don't know, factory towns? Old towns, yeah, because it's the East Coast. I mean, well, I mean, it's going, I guess it's through the Rust Belt. I don't know, I guess, I mean, you're hitting towns like Cleveland and Gary and, okay, so I, you know what, I recant my judgment on the drive, but that is a long-ass drive. It's a long drive. Um, But anyway, he hopped in the car, he started driving east, and he's like, you know what, I could visit my brother, but like, murder. But like, I'd rather kill people because that's what I do. So when he was passing through Burlington, Vermont, he decided to dig up the murder kit that he'd buried several years earlier in that area. This murder kit had zip ties, ammunition, guns, silencers, Drano, and duct tape. Once he dug it up, he started searching for victims. And that was when he came upon the home of Bill and Lorraine Courier. It was a little after midnight when he found the house, and he'd walked on foot from his nearby hotel. When he got up to the house, he cut the phone line, broke into the attached garage, and made his way into the kitchen in what he called a blitz attack that just took a few seconds. I mean, it was basically like, snip, in, in. He made his way to their bedroom, where he found 50-year-old Bill and 55-year-old Lorraine, both asleep in bed. They woke up to see this man dressed in all black, wearing a headlamp, armed with a gun. So they wake up to this bright-ass light, and basically they can see the outline of a person. The That's general, creepy. like, suggestion that a human is standing there. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. He ties them up with zip ties, and then he quizzed them on details about their home, asking, you know, do you have a safe? Where are your ATM cards? Do you have a gun? He then took the handgun that Lorraine kept for protection. He also took their cell phones. And then he forced them to get into their own vehicle before he drove them to an abandoned home that he'd found earlier. So not only when he was out doing his little, you know, out for a walk, searching for victims, he was also searching for just every step of his plan. He found an abandoned house he was going to turn into his murder house. And then he started finding his people. I mean, the amount of planning and logistics that he did is horrifying. I hate it so much. He is just such a level of creep. He's such a creep. It's the kind of thing that if he wasn't a fucking monster and was not a murderer, 
I'm like, dude, you should like be a program manager or a project manager for your job because clearly you have like the analytical side, the logical, like all of this, the logistics down. And just, I think when someone that smart and that planning does that stuff for evil, it's like the most horrifying. It is the fucking operations HR person who is a demon. It is. You shouldn't use those skills for evil. You should use those skills to, like, better the world. Like, not everyone has those abilities. And the fact that he decides to take this skill he has and be, like, a fucking monster with it. Like, why? Mm -hmm. Honestly, why is, like, the biggest question we always ask. So it's pointless for me to say it. But literally, I don't... I just... There are so many things I can't understand. Oh, no. I mean, it's... Yeah. Getting into that mindset is, like, impossible because it's not something we can relate to. It's not something we can, like, actually get get behind the eyes of. I don't really want to. I mean, I'd like to know more about why, but actually getting into the mind of a serial killer, I'm good. I'll sit here and drink my wine and get into the mind of a, I don't know, 26-year-old with a glass of wine. Yes. That's what I'm in the mind of. So... Once Keyes got them to this terrifying murder house, he tied Bill to a stool in the basement and he left, you know, Lorraine was left in the car, sitting in the car. When he got back from tying up Bill, he found Lorraine had escaped from the front seat of the car and she was trying to run to the main road. But he sprinted, he tackled her, And he dragged her back into a bedroom in the house and then tied her arms and legs to the bed. She was, I mean, if he'd been five, ten seconds later, she could have gotten away. Because she was out of the car, out of the house, running towards the road, and he came after her. Bill, at this point, started shouting from the basement, you know, where's my wife? Where's my wife? Keys goes down to check on him. And discovers that Bill had also started to free himself. He was about halfway out of his ties. And this pissed Keyes off. He did not like someone messing up his plans. He he very much focused in on, no, this is not how the plan is supposed to go. You're messing this up. And so he just went into a rage And so he grabbed a shovel and just started beating Bill repeatedly before taking out a gun and just start shooting him multiple times. Okay, that's a bit much. Keys then went back up to the bedroom where Lorraine was. He cut her clothes with a knife and he raped her twice. During the assault, he strangled her to the point where she lost consciousness. So she was going in and out of consciousness during this. After he brought her to the basement, because he wanted her to see her husband's body, he sat her down on the bench in front of her husband's body, and he strangled her from behind with a rope and killed her. While she looked at him. While she looked at him. He then doused their bodies with a shit ton of Drano, threw them in a corner of the basement, and covered them with debris before he left. He then took their car to a nearby parking lot, which is where he left his rental, 
switched vehicles, and then drove off and out of Vermont. Their bodies would never be found. Wait, does Drano, like, decompose your body or something? Like (gasps) Like it does clogs? Fucking, yeah. Oh my god. If you think of, I mean, it's a product that is literally made to break down proteins and fats and stuff from hair, from clogs, things like that. And it, like, dissolves people. So they were never found because their bodies were literally gone. Ev- yeah. Ev- like, everything, though? Even the bone? Yeah. That's that's what I'm assuming, yeah. Because, I mean, police clearly know where they were. I mean, I guess a lot of this info does come from, like, interviewing him. So he might have, like, not told them the location of the abandoned house. But I imagine if there's dead people, like, actual, oh, we can tell that's a human body in the basement... Even an abandoned home, like, it's going to be sold or renovated or something. People would have noticed. So I'm pretty sure, like, police know exactly where they were. But there's not really anything left. Can I just, like, sidebar and say this is a reason why you should clean with natural ingredients and not Drano? Because, holy shit, I didn't realize it could eat away a body. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, I totally went there. Clean with vinegar. I mean, that's... But shit, I mean, that's the stuff you're pouring into the rivers and stuff. Because if you think drains, like, go through, like, cleaning facilities and all the water is happy. No, I mean, so many cities, it just gets dumped straight into, like, rivers and the ocean and stuff. You see those, the um, storm drains that are like, don't dump here. We go right into the ocean. Or we go right into the river. Like, yeah. Just use one of those snake things to unclog your drain. I swear to God, it works so well. It's disgusting, but, like, you stick the snake it's thing disgusting down and you pull and it out, like, and it's satisfying. I mean, it's disgusting in kind of a fun way. Yeah. Because it's like, I mean, first off, you know, you shove it down there, and then you get to feel like a clown for a second, you know, as you're pulling it out, you know, imagining it's like <laughs> the a trillion handkerchiefs, but it's covered with hair and all of the sins that you've tried to shove down your drain. And it's the grossest thing ever. And you're like, literally, I, I don't even let my beard hair get that long. And I, yeah, I shave it into the sink. What's it to you? But what the, fu- how, how is there this much hair? And you'll never know. Because you rent that place, and that's probably not your hair. It's definitely not your hair, because last time I did a snake in my shower, so I'd lived here like a month, and it was starting to clog up, so obviously not me. Um, So I got the snake thing, did the clown, got it out, and there were like hair ties and stuff. Not mine. Not the same hair ties I use. Definitely whoever... the fuck lets their hair tie go down the shower drain? Is that a common thing? I don't know. I feel like you'd see it. Also, how would it go down without you, like, poking it down and through? (laughs) Oh my god, maybe it was a body. Anyway, Drano, dangerous, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it works, though. I mean, I have a bottle under my sink. As much as I'm like, don't use it, I will definitely use it again. I mean, obviously it works. Two bodies just disappeared. I, okay, true. So that was his, that was an example of his normal MO. That was what he would do. 
He would go to random places, dig up his murder kit, find random people, and just destroy them. But his MO changed just a bit in early 2012 when he set his sights on a victim in his own backyard. This wasn't someone he was killing in random places throughout the U.S. This was someone he was killing in the town he lived in, and that was Samantha Koenig. So prior to February 1st of 2012, Keyes had selected the Common Grounds coffee stand as the site of this abduction, and he did this after looking at other coffee stands. He considered them, but he wanted to choose this one because of its location, worked for his plan, and because it was open later than other coffee stands. Keyes had never met or even seen Samantha Koenig before. Oh my god, it was just whoever happened to be in there was his victim? Yeah, it was whoever was in his way, whoever it was, it was completely random. I don't think I knew that. That is dark. So, just before closing time, he's wearing a ski mask, which I think to a lot of people would be a big red flag. Again, it's Alaska in February at night. That might just be how you keep warm. I don't know. I've never been to Alaska. I really want to go. Never been, especially in February. Have been to Norway in February. Can confirm you bundle the fuck up in any way you can. And that includes ski masks. Honestly, I've never been anywhere where I've seen people on the reg wearing a ski mask. Because in my head, ski masks are made for people who are going to rob banks. But it's Alaska, so I can see people being like, hey, I need my whole face covered because it's fucking cold. Did you know, this is a fun fact um, and something a lot of people don't know, ski masks are also used in skiing. You don't have to be so rude, but yeah, of course they're used in skiing, but still. (laughs) But uh, no, I I agree with you. I know exactly. (laughs) I just, I'm sorry. You set me up for that. You did. I have yet to see a skier wearing a ski mask. I mean, I don't really watch skiing, but still, never seen it. I mean, I don't, I, I can't tell you if I've ever watched a person ski. I, that is 100% true. I actually, I went to the Nordic Skiing World Cup. Just kidding. I'm a liar, but... <laughs> such a liar. Such a Listen. liar. I've never watched anyone ski except for at the Nordic something amazing not the olympics but the other one (laughs) it was free but um i mean i think they were i've never like been face to face with skiers before is that better (laughs) like (laughs) i've never i've never been face to face (laughs) with a skier (laughs) but yes people use ski masks when it's cold (laughs) it's all i'm gonna say you know it's like all moms everywhere said in the 90s you lose 90% of your heat from your head. Wear a damn hat and a scarf, you harlot. You know how moms talk. I um, mean, honestly, though, popping on a beanie when it's cold outside really helps. I did it today. It was 30 degrees here. I was very cold. Oh, well, first off, you don't lose 90% of your heat through your head. You, you lose a little bit more than the surface area of it, but not that much more, just by the way. Honestly. But bundle the fuck up, people. No one wants frostbite. I'm about keeping my head covered, my core, my torso, my feet, and my freaking hands. So I'm fine. My legs and arms will survive. 
I mean, you do whatever you want. Stay warm out there, folks. It's a cold winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay, well, it's been really cold already this time of year. So, like, seriously, people, bundle up. Don't be like, I can handle it. Just put on a fucking coat. Next on the BBC, temperatures as low as negative 15 have affected Edinburgh down to the Midlands. Are you Scottish? What are you doing? I think so. I think that's where (laughs) the accent leaned into. I don't know. Can we just, unfortunately, get back to Israel Keys? I, yeah, I just needed a break. I get it. But, yes. So, he doesn't know Samantha from Adam. She doesn't know him. He comes up to the coffee stand. It's like, hey, can I get a coffee? And she's like, okay. She makes him the coffee, hands it over, and then he pulls out a gun. He demands money. And she complies, like I'm sure any retail worker getting robbed can attest to this. You're terrified, but mostly internally rolling your eyes. And she was like, okay, getting him the money. And then he forced himself into the coffee stand. Like through the and window? And he ties her hands up. I think the window's probably also like a door. Oh. Or there's a door next to it. Because she has to get in somehow. But he forces his way in and he ties up her hands with zip ties. He asks her where her car is. She told him, like, I don't I don't have a car. And he's like, okay. And he walks her out of the coffee stand. She breaks away from him and she starts sprinting. But just like Lorraine, he chases her. He tackles her to the ground. And he puts one arm around her, points the gun at her with his other hand. He's like, you need to cooperate. This gun has very quiet ammo. And don't do anything to make me kill you. Which, first off, fuck you. Don't be victim blamey. I mean, you are a murderer, but don't be victim blamey. It's not her doing anything to make you kill her. You're killing her. Like, you're you're the murderer. You're doing the action. Don't put that responsibility on anyone other than yourself. Yeah. Just saying. But he walks her across the road where his white truck was parked. He then bound her in the truck and drove away. He's driving around town. He's explaining to her that this was a kidnapping for ransom. And she told him, she's like, my family doesn't have a lot of money. And you're not, you're not going to get a lot because they're not going to be able to come up with much. And he's like, I'm not worried about that. They'll raise money for the ransom from like the public. They'll do a Kickstarter. They'll do a news conference asking for donations. I'll get my money. And he convinced her that if she cooperated, she'd be returned to her family unharmed. And she believed him. And so she started to try to talk to him and, you know, let her, let him know parts about her, you know, the thing you're supposed to do with kidnappers and like yeah. holding you hostage. Like, hey, by the way, I'm like a person. Let me tell you about the time I was babysitting my six-year-old brother and he fell and we didn't tell mom or, you know, just like personal stories and stuff. You make it personal. Um, because, mm-hmm. yeah, it could, it could save your life. And also if you're just talking about yourself, it can also give you time to think about your next move i don't know i've never been kidnapped but well oprah says that's what you should do well yeah so i believe her i believe her too and it's also like your survivor episode where i sorry i don't remember her Mm -hmm. name but she befriended him and she treated him like a hero and just like tricked the fuck out of him yeah she was able to humanize herself but also like manipulate him she's the coolest person i've ever met and i've never met her um but yeah so Samantha is talking to him, and she also is like, okay, I'm a kidnapping victim. 
he's totally right. You know, my parents would reach out to the public for help or start a Kickstarter or something like that. Okay, that's what's happening. All right. He drove her to another part of town, and that's when he sent two text messages from her phone, one to her boyfriend, one to her boss. And then he took the battery out of her phone, which I think means they can't track it anymore. I don't know. He then asked her about her, like, you know, where's your debit card? And she told him that she shared a bank account with her boyfriend. She didn't have an ATM card, but his was back in the truck that they shared. So Samantha told him where her house was. She gave him the PIN number. And then he took her to his house and put her into a shed that was in front of his house. He bound her and then he turned the radio up in the shed so that no one could hear her if she screamed. And before he left, he told her that he had a police scanner, and if she attempts to alert the neighbors, and there's any 911 calls that go out, he's gonna know, and he's gonna make it back before they would. He drives to Samantha's house, and he gets the ATM card out of the truck, but while he's there, her boyfriend comes out of the house and is like, who the fuck are you? Why are you breaking into my truck? And he goes back into the house to get help, but when he does, Keys ran back into his own truck and left before he could be found. So, boyfriend doesn't... Boyfriend just thinks this is, like, some dude breaking into his truck, whatever. He doesn't know that that's the man who's kidnapped Samantha. I mean, at this point, he doesn't even know Samantha's been kidnapped. He's just got a text from her a little bit earlier that was, like, she's mad and pissed and had a bad day at work. That's all he knows. Later on, though, he's gonna realize who this was, and that... Fuck. That's gonna torture him. Yeah. So... Keys gets back into his car. He has the ATM card. He drives away before a boyfriend can, like, come back. He goes to an ATM machine to test out the PIN number Samantha gave him. And then he goes back to the shed where Samantha is. He sexually assaulted her. And then he asphyxiated her. He then left her in the shed and went back to his house. And he packed because he had a cruise that he was taking from New Orleans the next day. So he's like, well, did that before vacation. Gotta get ready now. And so the next morning, February 2nd, or I guess not the next morning, that when that night turned into morning, yeah, he flew out to New Orleans to go on his cruise. And Samantha's body is still there in the shed. Keys got back to Anchorage on February 17th, and he began preparing a ransom note that demanded money to be placed in the account of the ATM card. He went to the shed to get Samantha's body, and this is when he took the steps to make it look like she was alive, and took the Polaroid picture of her, tied up to make the ransom note. In the days after this, he cut up her body and drove out to a lake where he cut a hole in the ice and put her body into the lake. About a month after this, Keys was using her debit card to get money out of an ATM in Texas, which, for how much he's able to be one step ahead of everything, plan everything out, really master the logistics. Dude, it's 2012. The fact that her debit card has not been shut off by now tells you that they're tracking it. Yeah, like they want to see its use. Like, they know something's happened to her that's not good. She didn't run away, so it's not her using it. Yeah. I mean, I guess at this point, though, they just... No, they have the ransom. You're right. It's not like she's run away. They've seen the ransom thing. Whoever has the card is 
at the very least, a kidnapper. So, no. And it's not even like he did the ransom in a way that would make people think, oh, Samantha ran away and, like, made this own ransom and was like, put money on my own card for this and you'll right. get her back or whatever. Because in my mind, that would be... I would be like, oh, okay, he's trying to make it look like she's doing a really good job of hiding because she's pretending she was kidnapped or something like that. I mean, no, he straight up made the fucking ransom. Police who are looking at the card are going to know that's at least a kidnapper. And in this case, much worse. The camera on the ATM that he was using, it got a picture of the rental car he was driving. And that officially linked him to the card and to the murder. So it snaps a picture of the car. They trace that back. Okay, that car's rent out by Israel Keys. That's him. And on March 16th of 2012, he was arrested in Lufkin, Texas. There is way too much that happens in Lufkin. That is a tiny freaking town. This has happened. Real. Well, this is the same town that your Survivor episode happened in. Like... You're about Oh Lufkin. my god, yes. It is. Oh, oh and I think hold on one second. I'm trying to make sure that this wasn't the same year. Just kidding, it's not. My survivor case was in two thousand five. He was arrested in Lufkin in twenty twelve, March sixteenth of twenty twelve. And he was originally extradited back from Texas to Anchorage just on credit card fraud charges. They were like Oh, he he stole her credit card or whatever. Like, that's what we can obviously prove. Yeah. But on April 2nd of 2012, searchers found Samantha's body in the lake. And on April 18th, an Anchorage grand jury indicted him for the kidnapping and murder of Samantha Koenig. I'm really glad they were able to find her body. I honestly didn't think they would. I'm shocked they did. Yeah. Because, I mean, by April... I guess it could be defrosting, and maybe because it was frozen, it didn't really decompose, so it's still, like, floating and stuff. Maybe. I I don't know. Or maybe, like, a foot or a piece washed on shore, and someone unfortunately, like, found it. Yeah. But yeah. But they did find her body, and so they were able to link him to that charge him with murder. While he was awaiting trial in Anchorage, he was interviewed for more than 40 hours by Anchorage police detective Jeff Bell and FBI special agent Jolene Godin. And although he was not 100% forthcoming with a lot of details, he started to confess to more and more murders that he had committed over the past 11 years. He admitted to studying the tactics of other serial killers And he enjoyed watching movies about killers, such as Ted Bundy. But he was careful to point out that he used his ideas, not those of famous killers. These were his own ideas. But he still was studying up on all of these different serial killers. You know, have you ever thought about how scary it's going to be for the killers of the future being able to study the killers of the past like just think just think about it right now it oh i even hate to say this but if there was someone who had this mo there's so much information out there especially with the true crime wave like being so accessible 
Um, and not that that's a bad thing, because I think it's great for awareness, and I totally still support it, support it, and I'm also very interested. But the information is out there, and it can be yeah. in the wrong people's hands, and there's a lot of very strategic information out there. It's just really creepy to think about. Yeah, I mean, you're able to study any serial killer that there's ever been an article written about and see their tactics, see what worked or whatever. It's kind of terrifying, but the good thing is investigators are able to do the exact same thing. True that. So, I mean, yeah, people are able to have a lot more information um, to be able to commit these things, but in the same breath, more people are able to have all this information to investigate these crimes and see these connections. And I'm telling you, we're going to start seeing more and more, like, people that are murderinos that decided to go into criminal justice and became detectives solving crimes because they're like, oh shit, this is just like the fucking Richard Chase case from Sacramento. Or whatever. That is such a good point. So I think the future of criminal investigation is very budding right now. Like a lot of people are gaining interest in making moves. Like, I mean, we're both in a a ton. Not a ton. I'm in two Murderino groups. I I will say I'm in Dallas now, but I'm still in the Austin one because I don't want to leave you guys. I love you guys still. Always and forever. Mm -hmm. But you see people who are like, I just went back to school. I'm studying criminal justice. And it's like, yes, you go. All the time. I love it. I mean, the current wave of true crime stuff that I think is really led by a lot of true crime podcasts right now, I think it's the same wave that started with shows like 2020 and Forensic Files and things like that that really like brought that type of true crime and investigative show into everyone's home into the mainstream totally yeah and it was shows that regardless of what was on you know you could turn on court tv and something interesting would be on yeah nowadays we have investigation discovery we have a ton of other channels like that and we also have a billion true crime podcasts just like this one that I think the exposure to true crime now in the current wave we're in is huge and I think absolutely will change the face of criminal justice 100 percent. boom um okay so my power just went out it's pitch black in my uh. apartment so apparently <laughs> i know on the video you just saw like darkness hang on a second let me grab a candle let me grab a candle um i'm gonna do this shit by candlelight <laughs> no i um I, in my head, I'm like, oh, god damn it, is our connection going back? No, you're still there. It's just, okay. Um, I mean, honestly. All right, like the olden days, like when they used to do podcasts. Honestly, take a screenshot of what's happening right now, because. <laughs> well, um, okay, well, I'm going to just truck truck right along, go back in. I'm almost done. Truck right along. You got this, and I got this. We're okay. good to go. <laughs> All right. Um, so also, I just have to say, you never realize how quiet things are, or or no, let me rephrase this. You never realize how loud the world is until all appliances and lights and everything are off. It's so quiet right now. It's like creepy quiet. I mean, yeah, because you you know, there's always the fan in the background and the fridge humming and the I don't know light bulbs 
lighting. Whatever. But no, totally agree. Yeah. So back to Israel Keys. He is admitting to all these murders that he's done over the last 11 years. He's saying he is, like, studying serial killers. But he's like, but my murders were all me because he's a little fuckwit. In the end, after all these conversations, investigators concluded that his motivation was, like, really simple and really basic. He just did it because he liked it. Oh, I he hate liked that. killing. And that was that was why. So he confessed to the murders of four people in three different incidences in Washington State. He said he killed two individuals and he kidnapped and killed a couple. He didn't give any names though. He probably knew the names though. That's that's like he didn't tell them the names, but he probably knew them because one of the things that he loved to do was when he got back to Alaska and he got home. He would follow the news of his murders. Oh. So he would, like, Google that shit and look up and keep track of all of the local news about these people that he murdered. That's sick. He also killed another person on the East Coast. He buried the body in New York, but killed the person in another state. But he wouldn't give the investigators any other details in the case. He also confessed to the murders of the couriers in Vermont. And for that one, he went into a lot more detail than any of his others. So that's how we have a lot of what happened. That was the couple with the Drano, right? Yep. So... In trying to piece together a timeline of all of his activities and everything, the FBI released a list of 35 trips that he made across the country between 2004 and 2012 in hopes that the public and local law enforcement agencies would be able to match these to bank robberies and also disappearances and unsolved murders at the time that Keyes was in the area. Mm Mm-hmm. But again, there's only so much they can do because of how much he would fly into somewhere and drive somewhere else. It's like, well, if you were in literally the Midwest of the United States this week, what murders and stuff did you have? I mean, it's honestly like trying to find two needles in one giant haystack. Like trying to match where he was with what was happening and that it was actually him. Oh, absolutely. And also, I mean... I know GPS was a thing, but I don't think at this point, you know, by 2012, cars were new enough that you'd be able to, like, download the GPS trip from the rental car and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. So, he's in jail for this. He is being looked into into so many murders. He's already confessed to, uh, you know, three. The That can be, like, really proven. He's confessed to more than that. Yeah. Um, but three can be proven. And on December 2nd of 2012, he was found dead in his jail cell in Anchorage. He had slashed open his wrists and then strangled himself with a rolled up bedsheet. Wow, so he was making sure that he didn't have to face anything. That there were just no consequences for him. Uh, Under his body, they found a blood-soaked four-page letter that he'd written down on, like, a yellow legal pad. Um, And at first, investigators could not make out the writing on this note because of, like, all the blood and everything. So the FBI lab enhanced the letter, and an analysis of it concluded that it didn't contain any more evidence or clues. It was just this really creepy ode to murder that was written by this serial killer who just 
liked to kill. Officially, Israel Keys is linked to the murders of three people, Samantha Koenig and Bill and Lorraine Courier, but it's likely that the real number is more than 11. 11? But we don't know. We don't know because not only is he dead, but he took so many steps to, like, hide these murders and hide his identity from them, you know, being, oh, your power's back on! I know, you can see me now. It's not blackness. (laughs) Oh Oh, my god. God. Um, Okay, well, that was good. That was a short little little fun break in the dark. Yeah, okay. Um, We're back in action and the world is great again. Okay. Um, well, I'm glad the power is back. But yeah, Keyes killed himself in prison. He's officially connected to three victims and most likely has killed more people throughout the U.S. And if he's traveling this much, who's to say he didn't kill people in other countries? But Fair. that is the case of the serial killer, Israel Keyes, who was my modern day serial killer. Because this motherfucker was murdering people up until 2012. And I'm pretty sure his ghost is fucking haunting us right now. And that's why all this crazy shit just happened. Because this dude... Um, Probably. Just gonna say, crazy AF. He's a fucking demon. Also, one thing I just realized with it being like 2012, with Samantha Koenig being 18, I was also 18 in 2012. Creepy. Yeah, she and I, I was 18 at the time of her murder, so we were the same age, exactly. Horrifying. Very horrifying. All right, well, I guess I'll get into my case now. Okay, tell me about your modern-day serial killer. My case is the Hollywood Ripper, also known as Michael Gargiulo. Ooh. I used quite a few sources for this one. One is E! Online. The Chilling Details of the Murder of Ashley Ellerin and the Hollywood Ripper by Natalie Finn. I also used an article from the LA Times, Trial to, to Begin for Man Accused of Thrill-Killing Young Women by Eileen Chekmidian. An LA Times blog article that I don't want to name the title of, but it was LA Times blog. And an article from Washington Post by Derek Hawkins. Okay. So this guy, Michael Gargiulo, he preyed upon young, attractive women who were, you know, very outgoing and welcoming and that happened to live close to where he did, wherever that location may be at the time. They were close Mm -hmm. to him. They were a potential victim. Once he decided on his target, he would lurk around their home, gather information until he spotted this perfect opportunity. And then he'd strike. Always at night. And always at their homes. What a fucker. Like, not only are you murdering people and attacking people, like, that is super fucked up, but it's people who think that you're just their friend or this friendly person. Like, people that you've been able to get close to because you're a manipulative little weirdo creep. That, but also it's along the lines of the people he would victimize were so kind-hearted that even though he was being a fucking creep, they didn't turn him away. Exactly. I mean, it's people that are just nice that he's able to get close to. Well, and that's the whole, like, 
social construct of having to be nice to people. You don't. If you feel weird around a person, don't worry about their feelings. Yeah, no. It is absolutely valid to say, you know what, I'm actually uncomfortable in this situation. 100%. So, Michael Gargiulo, he has been called a serial sexual thrill killer, and he got pleasure from slaughtering beautiful women. And he's more often known as the Hollywood Ripper. So in 2001, Ashley Ellerin, and she was 22 and a student at LA's Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, and she was also a part-time stripper. And her body was found laying just outside the entrance to the bathroom of her home, and it wasn't found until 9 a.m. the day after she died, when her roommate, Jennifer DeSisto, returned like to their apartment that they shared together mm-hmm. and found her. Oh. She immediately was shooken, obviously, calls 911, paramedics get there, and they pronounced Ashley dead at 9.28 a.m. on February 22nd. She had been stabbed 47 times. Holy shit. And 12 of those wounds were considered fatal just on their own. So this was very excessive, and the there were also numerous defensive wounds on her hands and on her right forearm. You know, she was trying to protect herself as she was just being repeatedly stabbed. That is so long. I mean, if if you just think about it as like one stab every like five seconds or whatever, that's like four straight minutes. It's a lot of stabbing time. someone. I mean, holy shit. The person who attacked Ashley slashed her throat so severely that she was almost decapitated. When I hear that, I just cannot stop thinking about, like, the kind of force it must take. I mean, when they do ballistics tests, I've talked about this before, but when they do ballistics tests and things, like, to represent a neck, they'll use, like, rope. I mean, it's hard. And it just makes me, it reminds me of Nicole Brown Simpson, how she was almost decapitated. I mean, it's so much more than just getting your throat cut, a knife dragged across your throat, or even pushed a little bit. I mean, that takes force and anger. It does. And, you know, when he attacked her, obviously, he was getting out some rage. Yeah. So... An interesting connection in this case is Ashton Kutcher. At this time, he was starring in that 70s show, so he wasn't, like, super famous just yet. Um, Mm -hmm. But he had been her date the prior evening, so that night before she was found. He later told police that he had talked to Ashley at about 8.24 p.m. to confirm their plans. The two of them were supposed to attend a Grammys after party together. He called again after 10 p.m. when he was on his way over, but she did not pick up. He didn't want to go over to her place without being able to touch base with her and get in contact. But about 45 minutes later at 1045, when he still hadn't heard from her, he changed his mind and he decided he was going to go. And when he gets there, he knocks on the door and there's no answer. So he walks around and, like, looks through the window, and he he later recalled seeing what he thought was just, like, wine spilled on the carpet. And he tried to open the door, but it was locked. Ashley's car was still in the driveway, but he thought that she might still be mad at him because he was late, and so she was purposely not answering the door, and so he just left, assuming he'd been stood up. So that wine that he supposedly saw on the floor... 
it was probably her blood, and she was probably already dead at that yeah. point when he knocked on the door. Oh my god, I cannot imagine the next day when he's realizing that he he saw his girlfriend's blood that it wasn't like a wine stain oh my god i know i know i can't imagine something like that and especially being someone that's so like in the public eye and like we all know about this like that's i I don't know well i'm like just to know that you could i mean if, if you dug in deep but please don't like listeners please don't but like you could go in and look at filming dates and see watch episodes of like oh this was the last episode that he filmed with that 70s show before he found out or like this is the episode he filmed after and it's like holy shit because i feel like when you're an actor or when you're just in a a piece of art that lasts your emotions at that time or at least your character portrayal is there forever Mm -hmm. and just the fact that i'm like you know you could never in my life go back to a day after you know a traumatic incident and see what was i doing but for actors and performers and stuff that go through these traumatic incidents i mean you can see them you can see what their day at work was like the next day. And that's yeah. horrifying. It is. I mean, their lives are in the public eye, on and off camera. Ashton and Ashley, they when they first met, Ashton was dating someone else. Um, and so he introduced Ashley to a buddy of his, and the two of them dated for a little bit. A little bit later, Ashton went to Ashley's home about two weeks before she died for a housewarming party. At that time, they were both single, and so they made plans to get dinner and drinks. On February 21st, 2001, the original plan was for Ashton to pick her up at 8 p.m., but he happened to be invited to watch the Grammys at a friend's house. And so he called Ashley at around 7.30 to tell her he'd be a little later than 8 And he called again to keep her posted on his whereabouts. So, you know, he's not being Mm -hmm. a dick. He's, like, keeping her up to to date with what's happening. And honestly, with the lifestyle of someone who's in the spotlight, I feel like it does bounce around. And so she seemed to have that kind of understanding. Well, and also, I mean, to give a call and be like, hey, I am so sorry. I know it's, like, an hour out, but I'm going to be, like, 30 minutes late. Totally. Cool. Exactly. So I mean, mildly annoyed, maybe of like, uh, okay, sure, but that's okay. about it. Yeah. So he calls her at seven thirty, and he actually left a voicemail. She called him back from her roommate Jen's phone, saying the house phone wasn't working at this time. It was about eight twenty-four p.m. She told him that uh, she just got out of the shower. She's going to dry her hair. She's going to start getting ready. So. The fact that he was late was not a problem. She wasn't ready anyway, you yeah. know? Like, she's just like, whatever, it's fine. Yeah. One of the first detectives at the scene later recalled seeing a blow dryer on the toilet seat. So, this is around when things started to happen. As it turned out, Ashley first crossed paths with Michael Gard- 
Gargiulo several months before her death. Um, Gargiulo lived nearby. He had a girlfriend and he saw Ashley and a friend outside of her place in the fall of 2000. Gargiulo approached and asked if he could help them fix a flat tire that they had. And then he gives them a business card advertising his air conditioning repair services. Friends have actually told police that after she met him, Gargiulo, um, who lived just a block away, he, he eventually, she called him and he came and fixed her heater. But after that, he started showing up uninvited to their home. Oh, fuck no. Right? Um, and on multiple occasions, he was spotted parked outside like he was watching the place for long periods of time. So Ashley's roommate thought he was a total stalker, which sounds like it. Yeah. But Ashley was a very kind-hearted person. And what is suspected is that he came over one night to a door, um, you know, the night of her murder, and she just let him in. So four years after Ashley was killed, Gargiulo had moved to, moved to the El Monte area in to the same apartment complex as a girl named Maria Bruno, who was 32. Gargiulo attacked her and pretty much butchered Maria in her home while she slept. Holy shit. He slashed... Butchered? Butchered. He slashed her throat and sliced off her breasts, and he staged those breasts for the police to find and ended up placing one of her nipples over her mouth. Oh, what the fuck? Okay, see, not that any kind of murder is okay. Literally, murder at its core is the most fucked up thing you can do. It's murder. But I feel like once it goes from, like, killing someone to... Mutilating? Killing or torturing and mutilating them, like, that is a whole nother kind of evil. It is. And... Her husband, Irving Bruno, um, who she was separated from at the time, he was the one that found her mutilated body. Oh, oh God. So Maria lived in apartment 20, and Gargiulo had a pretty clear shot. So if he was looking out his window right down to her place, he could see her front door and the living room window and the kitchen window. (laughs) So he'd had his eye on her. Soon after investigators found her body, they spotted um, a blue surgical booty outside her apartment door, and it had three drops of her blood on it. Gargiulo's DNA matched the profile that was found along the elastic band of the booty, so there was some more DNA on this surgical boot. And the Mm -hmm. same type of booties, which he would wear for work for his air conditioning job. They were found by the detectives in his attic. So it's like he was trying to cover up his shoe prints, but maybe one fell off or something. Yeah. And they're the like paper booties, the elastic that would like kind of like a doctor's surgical mask kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Like the blue booties that doctors wear. Yeah. And before Maria's killing, Gargiulo had been seen trying to open her door and looking through her window. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Right? Like. I mean. Such a stalker. Oh, fuck no. 
if you see someone who is not your neighbor trying to open your neighbor's door and trying to open the window, fucking call the police. Fucking call the apartment complex. Immediately. You know what? Yeah, maybe they're going to talk to them and it's going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm the new roommate or like I just moved in or I'm the significant other and whatever. I locked myself out. And it's a misunderstanding. They're annoyed because they had talked to police. What the fuck ever. Or it could be a fucking murderer and you save your fucking neighbor's life. Like, don't, don't fucking take that shit for granted because people get killed. It's true. If you ever see someone peeping in someone's window, call the police. Call the fucking police. Because even if it's someone who lives there and they're curious, it's just like that's such an awkward thing to do that you may as well just call. It doesn't matter what it could be. Yeah. And especially if, I mean, granted, this is like stereotyping based on gender and stuff, but like, especially if it's a guy. I mean, fucking peeping toms are abound. And, like, obviously women can also be peeping toms and stuff. not saying that women can't. But men are fucking creepy in general. That's true. So in April 2008, so we're fast-forwarding a few years, Gargiulo's last alleged attack happened. And this one was unlike any of the others because, thankfully, Michelle Murphy survived. Oh, that's good. Wait, so they found his DNA on the elastic of a booty in her house, that, like, you know, from the murder, and that didn't really lead anywhere at the time? I mean, he was able to move on and attack someone else? I think that's something they found later in time, or oh. or when they found it, they there was no... they didn't know whose it was. Eventu- okay. Eventually, it was determined to be his. So, okay. 2008, he's still, like, out. He's on the loose. He's just a, a neighbor of a woman who was murdered. Totally. So, Gargiulo and Michelle, who was 27 at the time, they lived across from one another. Like I said, that's totally his M.O. And they shared an alley together in Santa Monica. In the months leading up to Gargiulo attacking Michelle... He he would, like, greet her outside the apartment, you know, the typical hellos, like, always talking to her. And on this particular day, April 28th, she'd been sleeping for about an hour when all of a sudden she wakes up to being stabbed in her own bed. Oh, shit. She managed to fight him off. She grabbed the knife by the blade and with both of her hands... Like, she's holding this knife, and she kicks him off of her. She's holding the knife by the blade, so her fingers are getting fucking sliced. And she's obviously holding onto it tight enough for him to not be able to push it into her. So she is like, fuck my tendons. Maybe not even feeling the pain because the adrenaline and all this shit. She's my favorite person. I I love her. She is a fucking badass. I know, when you think about this type of situation and her literally grabbing the blade of a knife with both of her hands, she knew in that moment, I grab this knife or I die. What are yeah, you what, I are, mean, what are you gonna do? You're gonna grab the fucking knife. That's the kind of knife that 
you know, she knows she grabs it hard enough. That thumb's going through her thumbs. She's going to cut off her own thumbs. That's fucking horrifying. Yeah, depending on the angle, for sure. Fingers could be gone. Um, Yeah. So at some point during the struggle, when she's grabbing the knife and she's kicking him off, he cut his wrist and he left some blood behind on her bedspread. And this blood is seen trailing outside um, onto the alley and out back. She recalls him saying, I'm sorry, as he runs away. So basically, the fact that he, I don't know that she, like, attacked him back. He, like, I don't know, freaked the fuck out and was like, bye, I'm sorry. Are you shitting me? No, he, he left. And apparently, he had climbed through an open window in her living room. And he fled out the front door As soon as he was gone, Michelle ran to it, locked it, closed the window, and called her boyfriend, who is now her husband, and then she called the police. Oh my god. I... She is my favorite person. Like, that's... She she wins favorite person of the week. She's phenomenal. And so she calls the police, she's taken to the hospital, and she obviously needed stitches and surgery on her hand. Because uh, like yeah. you were just saying, she grabbed a fucking knife. Also, just the, how much instinct you have to fight to do that. Because obviously yeah. every single part of your brain, your body, your reflexes is telling you, don't grab that knife. And you have to power through all of that to save yourself. And she did. I mean, it's, it's the same part that like, you cannot hold on to like a burning stove or something. Like you could touch it, but your brain and everything, every part of you is like, no bitch, put your hand away. And to fucking fight through all of that. And I mean, yeah, the adrenaline, but to have that fucking strength, and just tenacity. Holy shit. I know. I totally agree with you. I think the fact that she grabbed a blade with both her hands is very much akin to holding your hand in a flame or on a burner or something that you know, like, this is going to fucking hurt, but I have to do it because I'll die if I don't. And, oh, God. Yeah. Um, she obviously never went back to that apartment, refused to live in it. She never lived there again. A hundred percent agreed. And there are photos that show her bloody handprint on the carpet when she stumbled getting out of bed and the blood spattered bathroom as she was looking at what happened to her and what her wounds were. And then her blood spattered cell phone that she used to call the police. So there's blood everywhere. Oh my god. I... Jeez. I am so glad she's survived. Yeah. And because of her attack in June 2008, Gargiulo was arrested on the suspicion of attempted murder. And less than two months after his arrest... Detectives were able to link him to the killings of Ashley and Maria. So, Michelle surviving is what got him caught. Yeah. Additionally, there was DNA collected at the scene 
that linked Gargiulo to another crime through the national database. His DNA had previously been obtained by Illinois in a previous case from the 90s. Oh. So one night in August in 1993, Trisha Pacaccio, who was 18 years old, was celebrating her high school graduation with her friends. And, you know, they're having this, like, last amazing night of their lives before they go off to college. She was headed to Purdue University, and she was going to go to school for um, engineering, and she had a scholarship. So she, her whole yes. life is set up. Everything's set up. Early 90s STEM careers set up? Yes. That night, after they celebrated, she dropped one of her friends off at about 1 a.m. before she headed home. She walked up to her door, carrying her house key, but she never made it inside. The next morning, her father found her on the doorstep with numerous stab wounds to her chest, shoulder, and neck. At the time, detectives said that they believed the killer had been waiting for Trisha as she returned from a night out with friends. So, whoever did this was just lying in wait. At this time, Gargiulo was 17 years old, and he was a friend of Trisha's younger brother. But it wasn't until a decade later that investigators discovered that the DNA that was collected from her under her fingernails, that was Gargiulo's. That was fucking his. I mean, DNA... Like, testing and stuff in 1993, it was still so much more elementary. Like, I mean, that was still the beginning stages. That and the fact that he didn't have any type of record in 93, so it wasn't going to match anything. Yeah. I mean, like, why would it be? I mean, you want to test as many people as you can, yeah, but... You know, a a friend of her younger brother, like, is, is that enough a connection test? No, not really. No. Like. So this DNA match was not made until 2003. Um, but Gargiulo was not charged with Picaccio's murder until 2011. When. T- oh. Yeah. So like a big gap. And it's because two witnesses came forward after they watched an episode of 48 Hours that featured Gargiulo. So the, these two witnesses are identified as Witness D and Witness E. And they came forward in L.A. to say that Gargiulo told them he had killed someone in Chicago. And this was information that he had confided in them in the late 1990s while they all worked together at Rainbow Bar and Grill on Sunset Boulevard. And so Gargiulo was a bouncer at the time. Okay, so first off, if your co-worker... Don't tell your co-workers you murdered people. That's weird. Second off... Don't wait? If your co-worker... If your coworker, if your friend, whatever, if someone confesses murder to you, go to the fucking police. I don't care how close you are to them. Go to the police. Because worst case scenario, they lied to you. It's a whole thing. You get in a fight. And you know what? Do you really want to be friends with someone who thinks 
they're gonna like impress you by being like i murdered someone or you could like solve a help solve a murder and bring justice so just if someone confesses murder go to the police Yep. just oh my god yep don't wait until you see something on 48 hours years later yeah so this July 2011 warrant for Garchulo's arrest in the Pacaccio murder stated that he told Witness D that he had stabbed someone and at first told Witness E he had buried the body. And then he said, oh, I'm only kidding. I actually left that bitch on the step for dead. Which is true because her dad found her the next morning. Oh, my God. Also, the way that people talk about other people, that just makes me ill. It's fucking disgusting. Like, just, I don't care if they're your worst enemy in the world. Just don't be a fuck. Like, it does not take any energy to be, like, neutral nice. No, it doesn't. That's it. I'm not I'm not saying, you know, this person who did you wrong and is, you know, in your mind just the most fucking evil person. I'm not be saying be like, you know what? They're coming from a good place. They're great. Yeah, no, fuck them. But be neutral nice. Like, you know what? They're a person. I don't have the energy to care anymore. They're going to do their life and I'm going to do mine. Boom. That's the best revenge you can get on anyone you hate. It's just do your life. And be that much more you. Absolutely. It, that's so true. Like, don't get revenge on people by action. Get revenge on, like, living your life. Get revenge by being the boss-ass bitch that all of you are. Also, listen to Lizzo's new album, because basically that's it. But in a much more velvety, gorgeous voice. <laughs> that's true. That is true. <laughs> so when all of this dna connection comes out this was definitely an unsatisfactory turn of events for trisha's parents and earlier there had been this explanation they got that dna evidence alone was not enough to arrest gargiulo because it could have come from casual contact and they slammed that evidence they were like that's fucking bullshit and so they were turned down from like that reaction. And so obviously at this point they're like, are you fucking kidding me? We were right. So that's how the evidence was like discovered in 2003, but not like pursued until 2011. Yeah. Her parents suggested that Gargiulo would never have been charged in Chicago in Trisha's death. If he hadn't been charged in the murders in LA first. And so their thought was that the women in L.A., they'd be alive if something had have been done in the first place in Chicago with the death of their daughter. Yeah. So when it came time for Gargiulo's trial, one of the big things that stood out was the similarities in all of these crimes. All of the victims were young. They were outgoing women. All of the attacks occurred at night. All of the victims suffered multiple stab wounds. All of the victims were stabbed with a knife. And each of them were attacked in or around their home and in close 
proximity to Gargiulo. Like, they were all his neighbors. Yeah. Basically being like, bro, you're fucking dumb. Don't murder all your neighbors and just move around. You're gonna get fucking caught. Yeah. Basically, Gargiulo was this person who was hiding in plain sight. He had a steady job. He had a wife. He had a child. It's very, like, BTK-esque where (laughs) you're just there living your life, but you're actually this monster who's doing all these things. Yeah. I mean, I think those are the scariest killers are the average everyday people that you're just like, oh, that's David. He's the, you know, he's the neighborhood whatever. Or, like, the people who you walk past... And you don't even acknowledge because you walk past them every day. Yeah. That, to me, that level of invisibility you have by being inherently visible on a small scale is fucking terrifying. That is. Oh, God. That is terrifying. Um, so there was a pretrial hearing and a judge ruled on June 30th, 2010, that the case should portray should proceed to trial. But there was no date set. And I guarantee you, no one thought that this was going to take nearly a decade to get, like, started. Okay. See, that is, that was where I was confused. And I was like, shit, is this the same case or a different one? Because, you know, all this is happening. He's being caught in 2011. And in my mind, I'm like, I swear it was not that long ago I saw, like, a news article about Ashton Kutcher. And I'm like, shit, how many trials has he been involved in? It's the same fucking guy. Yeah, I mean, the the actual trial just happened this year in 2019. And part of this, like, decade-long delay was because Gargiulo continuously was switching his attorneys and for about three years in this time, he was actually representing himself. Oh, honey, no. Do not represent yourself. I don't care who you are. If you are ever in a position where you are arrested and they're like, yo, who do you want to be your attorney? You, a public defender, someone you pay, whatever. Do not represent yourself. I do not care if you are Annalise Kading herself. Don't you fucking represent yourself. Because that is dumb. Get extra perspectives. Holy shit. Public defenders are overworked, overtaxed, not given enough pay, not given enough resources. We all know that. But they are such an incredible resource. They've been to law school. They know this shit they're better than you you yeah you don't i don't care how smart you think you are if you're not a lawyer don't represent yourself and even if you are a lawyer don't represent yourself i don't think that's a smart move no because you could you know be a lawyer who has a second opinion you know who has another person in their wing that can literally only be good totally So when the trial was finally underway, Michelle Murphy was the prosecution's first witness. Defense attorney Dale Rubin argued in court that Gargiulo was in an amnestic state, so like in this state of amnesia, and this is when he attacked Michelle 
and so he couldn't remember hurting her. But he regained his senses while he was in her apartment, and that's why he ran out saying, I'm sorry. Which I'm, um, I'm like, no, that's too easy. No. Yeah, no, 100%. That's bullshit. Also, like, yeah, lots of people... I don't know, blackout or whatever. You know what? You're still responsible for you, even if you have a mental break, even if you are blackout drunk and don't remember what you did, or even if you go through an amnestic episode or whatever the fuck he said, you're still responsible for your own fucking actions. Like, that doesn't change shit. It doesn't. Sorry, bitch. Bye. I would be a sassy judge. (laughs) Oh my god, you would be a sassy judge. I would wear Louboutins under my robe, and I would sachet to my chambers. Sachet. I feel like sachet has, like, this swooshing sound. Like, Okay. Sachet, you stay, because you're guilty and you're going to jail. Boom. Okay, well, back to my case. Um, When it came to Ashley's murder... There was this very narrow window of when that could actually happen for someone to get into her house and murder her. And <laughs> so whoever that was was obviously watching the home to know when that moment was. So when Ashton Kutcher testified, his testimony was used to help establish a timeline of the alleged events. Because again, they talked on the phone at like 8.30 and then when he came by by 10.45... <laughs> She was presumably dead. The defense team argued that Gargiulo had dissociative personality disorder, um, which is a mental illness that is marked by memory gaps. I think it's also more colloquially... Wow, colloquially? There we go. There's the bottle of wine talking there, for me. Yeah, there it is. But I think it's more colloquially slash used to be known as multiple personality disorder is now known as Dissociative Identity Disorder, DID. Yeah. However, Michael Gargiulo, who was 43 years old, was found guilty of murdering two women and the attempted murder of another, so Ashley, Maria, and Michelle. And the, <laughs> the jury deliberated for three days before returning their verdict on the morning of August 15th, 2019, following a three-month trial. And almost two decades of waiting for the victims. Think about that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, the trial from his arrest was 10 years. And, you know, all of the crimes and stuff he'd done before that. Damn. Yeah. Jurors unanimously recommended Garchulo be put to death for the murders of Ashley and Maria and the attempted murder of Michelle. So this decision the jury made brought one of the country's most closely watched serial killer cases closer to a resolution. However, it's pretty unlikely that Gargiulo is going to be executed soon, if ever. And that's because earlier this year, uh, 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom suspended the death penalty indefinitely. He called capital punishment an immoral punishment and a public policy failure. And the state of California has more than 700 inmates on death row. This is more than any other state. But California authorities, they've not executed someone 
uh, since 2006. So it's been a long time since I've done it. And just this year, the governor is like, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. It's been 12 years since we have. And like, what if we just didn't? I mean, honestly, I... When you said that, when you said the, the jury recommended the death sentence, my first thought was, I didn't realize that California was a death penalty state. They're not. And I think this is why, is because legally, technically, they are, but, like, not really. Mm-hmm. But Washington State's the same. I mean, Gary fucking Ridgeway is, like, life in prison without parole because of the, like, death penalty, like, woo, hold your horses, law, or you know, things and such. Mm-hmm. But, damn. Yeah. So, Gargiulo is scheduled for sentencing in February 2020. Uh, so, we'll know where this case goes soon. He's being charged with first-degree murder and Trisha Picaccio slaying in Chicago in 93. And he is expected to be extradited to stand trial for her murder. After everything wraps up in LA. So. Yeah. Like it's literally he's. The the case that's going on right now is for Ashley, Maria and Michelle. But he still has another one lined up for Trisha. Yeah. And that is the case of the Hollywood Ripper. Which is one that spans a lot longer than we'd like to think. With something that's just going to trial right now. But this you know, he is a freaking monster. Like, Michael Gargiulo, he's that, like I said earlier, he's that creepy BTK-esque who's just hiding in plain sight and doing yeah awful things to innocent women. Yeah, he's just, he's that fucking monster who's invisible by just being visible enough. Yeah, but, okay, well, you want to jump into postmortem? I do. All right. Well, I will say, okay, I'm just going to start this off because I just finished my case and it was very tense, but Israel Keys is a monster. Like, I didn't know you were bringing those guns to this case. I mean, clearly, I didn't know I was bringing those guns until I started doing this research and was like, oh, what the fuck have I stumbled onto? Which horrifies me at all the cases that we just don't know. I know. That we're blissfully unaware of, that we will soon be fully aware of because of this podcast. Yep. Well, like I said, mine was insane and very modern and Ashton Kutcher. But the planning that went into... What Israel Keys did, like, oh my god, it was so smart and scary and creepy and just, like, makes you shake and be afraid. Like, there's nothing like that kind of fear. Yeah. I mean, I'll have to, I 100% have to agree because I think, to me, the idea of someone traveling to... Vermont, for the sole reason of burying a murder kit that they're going to use in the future. Not doing any crimes yet, but just burying it. And not only doing that in Vermont, but Arizona and Texas 
and Washington and wherever the fuck else. Like, just like you said, the amount of planning that went in, the amount of literally this guy was setting up his entire fucking life to lead up to murdering and torturing these people. Oh, fuck no. Yep. I will say, I think your case, though, is the perfect example of the most terrifying, like, fucking murderer next door type shit. You know. Your neighbor who kills you. The unassuming person who's, you know, who's your neighbor who you're like, oh... Yeah, he has an air conditioning repair business. He gave me his business card once. Or like, oh, yeah, he's always outside the house, but whatever. Or all this shit. I know. But I think definitely you hit the nail on the head with the hammer. I still don't know what that phrase actually is. And I don't think I ever will. You fuck it up every time, and I love you for it. I it's just not something that's going to stick in my mind, you know? And honestly, of the things for me not to remember, I'm okay with that. I still remember, like, Fair. my social security number and my birthday. I mean... And how to drive. Those, so those that's Those are good important. things to know, so... Yeah. So the nail with the hammer and the head, that metaphor, me not knowing, I'm fine with that. Totes fine. But I think... All things considered, yes, uh, Israel Keys, super intense, so. I've got the topic next time, and also, just gonna say, um, our weird, like, experience tonight with me, like, losing power, and we, like, did podcast by candlelight, and then it came back, you know, honestly, at this moment, I'm just being very appreciative of what I have, the fact that electricity yes but when you think about the fact that the power went out and we could still continue because i have a computer that was powered up i have the mic plugged in and i could call you it just you know honestly i think it's very important for us to be appreciative of the things we have and i'm not trying to be like whatever she's had wine rant right now But, like, really... But also, yeah. But also, yeah. But also, just be appreciative of the things you have. No, I think that's so real. I mean, like... It's cheesy. I I get it. Stop making fun of me. I'm I'm not making fun of you. You I am agreeing with you. A little bit. I a little bit want to make fun of you. But I'm also agreeing with you. Because there's been multiple times already today that I've been having conversations... And in my head, I'm like sitting back, hands on hips, and I'm like, well, I have it pretty damn good. You know, how I talk. And... Like a grandpa. I... Basically. (laughs) Um, But, no, you're right. I think it's great we have electricity. We have... I also think the juxtaposition of recording a podcast by candlelight... Might be the most fucking hilarious thing that has happened today. I know. Because what? Because we're like, you have no power. Well, let's keep our microphones plugged in and our laptops powered on and our FaceTime going. And let's record this media. 
Because what the fuck is our lives? We were able to do it. I'm just saying, I I feel like it's so easy to not appreciate what you have. I agree. So you should. And we haven't really actually talked about it yet, and I don't know how, but that is something I am thankful for as we rush headlong (laughs) into Thanksgiving in the United States being two days away. Yes. Uh, For all you Canadians out there, y'all have Thanksgiving in like October. I don't know why. I don't know the history of it. American public schools don't tell us this. But (laughs) one month late, happy Thanksgiving uh, for our uh, American listeners listening to this right when it comes out. Thanksgiving is a couple days away. Have fun driving on the roads. Be safe. It's icy out there, bitches. Um, And for everyone else, it just, I don't know. I'm thankful for y'all. All of you. Whatever time and day you're listening to this thankful for you i am also so thankful to all of our listeners again we say it all the time but without you guys this wouldn't be a thing so thank you so so much for helping one of my dreams come true like something i'm super passionate about i'm able to do on a daily basis and that's because of you guys you guys are listening so thank you yeah and also Brittany. I'm thankful for you. Aww. I'm thankful that we get to do this together. Well, you're going to just like make me cry. I'm obviously super thankful for you as well. Good. I would hope so. <laughs> that would be weird if I was thankful for you and you were like, yeah, you're, you're great. Cool. You're fine. You're just like, you're a great team player. And then I go cry myself to sleep and eat a handful of Cheez-Its, which sounds amazing right now, but. I want some Cheez-Its, but shut up. You know I'm super thankful for you. Oh, thank you. Again, I'm thankful for you too. Um, But if y'all enjoyed this episode and are also thankful for us, because we're thankful for you, and if you don't return the favor, honestly, like, you're that person at the family (laughs) uh, table, and I will call you out because I'm that person at the family table. I feed for the drama. That's my calories. Pumpkin pie, turkey, stuffing. I don't need that shit. I need the drama. I don't. That is not true. But regardless, hope y'all enjoyed this. Make sure if you also enjoyed it to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It is the number one thing that y'all can do to help others find us. Um, We move up further in the rankings. People are cascaded out our podcast, all the things, and y'all are fucking incredible. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram. That's where we're most active. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Start a conversation with us. Let us know what you think. We love you. It's all of it is true. And we both have Instagram on our phones. And when you comment on our photos or you send us a message, we uh, read them. We see and it. I, dear God, it is, that is like my favorite thing. In the middle of the day, I'm like at work, I read a message and I'm like, uh, bitch, you touch my heart. It's true. Absolutely. But again, thank y'all so, so much. We're all thankful this season. Happy Thanksgiving if you're listening to this episode. When it goes live or around that time-ish. Happy Thanksgiving! 
If you're not listening to this around Thanksgiving, you know what? Happy Thanksgiving. We can be thankful every damn day. Don't limit yourself. Truth. But this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Gobble, gobble, bitches. Bye.